Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Welcome to Episode 7 of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Today, our guest is attorney John Carlson, who has been practicing law in Erie, Pennsylvania and the surrounding area for nearly 25 years. During this time, he has represented thousands of people in need of legal help. Much of Mr. Carlson's practice involves defending citizens accused in criminal cases of all kinds, including murder. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I know you're busy, so I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. I have mentioned before um, on the show that there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in in the United States. And this show, we try to create an understanding for our listeners that our current judicial system is not necessarily truth and justice for all, and that everyone needs to be aware that there's a a widespread problem in our country that does not discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. Today, attorney John Carlson will share the story of his teenage client, and how he was wrongfully accused of murder and rightfully acquitted at trial. The case involves a drive-by shooting at an outdoor party after a high school football game on July 24, 2015. At that time, two teenagers were killed and at least four others were struck by gunfire. John, before we get started, I just want to mention, I've previously stated that there are approximately 2 million people in jail or prison in the United States, and there's, there's no scientific formula that can be applied on how many are innocent, but it is believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. So even on the low end, that equates to about 40,000 people, or on the high end, it could be as much as 200,000 innocent men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And what that number does not include is those that have been wrongfully charged of a crime. So those numbers are much higher. And that is exactly what happened to your client, who, if I'm correct, was around 18 or 19 years old when he was arrested and charged with murder. Is that correct? That's correct, Jeff. And uh, it was happened four years ago today that uh, the incident giving rise to the charges uh, occurred. It occurred, as you noted, after a charity high school football game and uh, basic facts of the case were that there was a house party going on not far from the stadium where the football game had arisen. And there were roughly a 100 people standing outside or inside and around the house uh, at the time. It was later in the evening when all of the sudden an SUV with what is believed to have contained four people in it drove by shooting out all the windows. And as a result of that, uh, there were also some people at the party, teenagers, who had firearms, and they fired back at the SUV. The SUV continued past the party down the road approximately two blocks where 
it made a turn, and in making the turn at such a high rate of speed, they hit a telephone pole, and the SUV turned over onto the driver's side and came to rest. Then the occupants of the vehicle had no means of escaping other than to climb up and out of the SUV through the passenger side windows, which, unless they were wearing gloves, would have left fingerprints, and indeed the police did find at least three identifiable set of fingerprints on that vehicle. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, two people, or I may not have mentioned, two people were killed due to the shots fired, and at least four others were injured, all of which were teenage uh, teenagers. So the community was not only shocked, but they were demanding justice. And that put a lot of pressure on our local police here to do a thorough investigation and make some arrests, which it took the police in this case seven and a half months before any arrests were made. And during that time, they claim they were doing an investigation. So those are the basic facts of what happened. Now, when my client was arrested, it was premised upon, at least according to the testimony from the preliminary hearing, two pieces of evidence that the police were provided. They claim that they had found his high school football letterman's coat in the overturned SUV, and they also claimed that they had an eyewitness who identified him as one of the people getting out of the SUV and fleeing after it had crashed. Wow. So just just to back up for one second, how long did he spend in jail while he was awaiting his trial? Sure. Well, there were some rulings that had come down, in particular Commonwealth versus Ricker, which permitted uh, the use of solely hearsay testimony at the preliminary hearing. So in this case, we challenged that law because the only person who testified at his preliminary hearing was the detective who arrested him, who obviously wasn't present on the scene that night. And as a result of the appeals, he spent two years in jail before his case came to trial in January of 2018. That's it's it's a big misjustice, unfortunately, and those are two years that he can't get back. They're just they're gone. He'll never get those years back. And nope. when I tell you about the evidence that they secured and how the trial played out, uh, it's even more egregious that he sat in jail that all that while. So I, I always mention that there there are many things that lead to wrongful convictions, and and they include false or coerced statements. There's just a. Um, a sampling of, of what leads to wrongful convictions in many cases that I've worked on and um, that many others have. And, and that includes false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, false witnesses or jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. And it sounds like from, from our conversation earlier, this case includes several of those issues. Yeah, there were a number of factors that came into play in this case, um, and I'd be happy to get into them with you. Yeah, please do. So I understand, and and I I think it's – I'm always 
shocked, you know, when there's so many people and there, there had to be other witnesses. And I understand firsthand how most people don't want to get involved. You know, they're, they're afraid of retaliation. There's, there's gangs. They, they have a code of standard or code of ethics that they live by, you know, and a lot of the, the bigger players, they, they like to say ride high or die, meaning, you know, they're not going to snitch. They'll, they'll die before they snitch. So I understand all that, but there's, there are certain things that could have been done and one of them is obviously the the eyewitness and what what you learned about that witness as well as that letterman's jacket that's a big deal to me because uh, i'm going to let you elaborate on that cuz that just really I, I guess the only thing you can do is shake your head like seriously i don't understand how you can make that mistake or not look into that further and I, and I would also yeah, that turned that, but... out to be a very big deal in the trial. And before I get to that, let me just preface it with uh, this: following the incident, there were five people arrested and charged with murder. One of the defendants had his trial separated because he was at the party firing back at the SUV. The four who were alleged to have been inside the SUV firing at the partygoers were all tried together, and my client was one of those three. Um, now, I obviously had to distinguish my client before uh, the jurors by reminding them that even though they're being tried together, they're to be judged separately, because if the jurors are to hear proof beyond a reasonable doubt as to one, they are not to jump to the same conclusion regarding my client because of the evidence that we were going to be pointing out to them. So um, I need to make that prefatory remark. Now, what had happened was there were certain players in this, in this case, the names of which are as follows, and then I will reference them. The, the four that were alleged to have been in the SUV went by the names of my client's name was DeMond, the driver was Keyshawn, and, uh, and it was his SUV registered and insured to him. Another passenger was alleged, allegedly Jahan and Stephen. There were two other people involved in this case by the names of Taikim and Milano. What it was told to the police by one of the victims who was shot and survived was that Milano had previously, in the months earlier, shot Taikim. Taikim was a high-ranking gang member here in the city, and as a result of that conduct, Taikim and his gang needed to strike back swiftly and forcefully. So they planned to get Milano in a tight area and then kill him. And indeed, this party took place outdoors in a relatively small, tight area. And on the SUV that turned over after it crashed were found Taikim's fingerprints. Shockingly, over the seven and a half months of the investigation, which the police insisted they were thorough in, of the 100 partygoers that were there, approximately 10 to 15 of them were actually interviewed. Now, admittedly, most of them did not want to cooperate, but even more shockingly, Taikim was never interviewed, and nowhere in the police reports did it reflect an effort to locate and find him. In fact, at the trial, I brought out the fact that throughout the course of this investigation and over the two years since the incident occurred but before it went to trial, Taikim had been brought in 
to the police department on numerous occasions following minor arrests for such things as driving without a license and other small incidents. I even introduced a picture of him at the booking counter of the police department after the shooting took place, and the detective was forced to admit that he never interviewed him, never asked a patrolman to have him brought in or otherwise when he was in custody there, uh, which was pretty shocking. So why he was never questioned escapes me. The police summarily dismissed the statement from the one victim who told them that that had occurred, um, and that was the basis for it. But that's how it played out. Now, when all this went down, rumors started swirling as to who was in the SUV, who were the four people that were in there, and my client's name was brought up on social media. So notwithstanding the fact that nobody wanted to talk after his name had been brought up about two months after the shooting, his mom took him down to the police station so that he could tell them he had nothing to do with it. And he was there for several hours as the police interviewed him, insisting that he had nothing to do with it, but that he had come down because his name was circling and swirling around on social media as potentially one of those who were involved. And he told them exactly where he was and who he was with. He was with his girlfriend at her house. He had moved in with her. And what 18-year-old would pick his buddies over as girlfriend, right? We all at the age of 18 would have loved to have had the opportunity to move in with our girlfriend. Um, So in any event... He had her, her mother, her her godmother, and her brother all as alibi witnesses. And once again, the police never interviewed any of them, despite what he told them. He also told them that he was a senior in high school here in the city, and that he played football for the football team, and that he was number two on the football team. Um, So all that was part of his interview five and a half months before they came out and arrested him and charged him with this. Well, two years later, when it came time for trial, I filed an alibi defense, which is a requirement under the Pennsylvania Rules of Criminal Procedure, and I indicated in there that these were going to be the alibi witnesses that we intended to call. And the police department and the law enforcement sent out detectives to interview these people now over two years after the crime for the very first time. Incidentally, when the officer then got up on the witness stand, he acknowledged that the only effort he made to go and interview the girlfriend before the arrest was one day at noon. And I pointed out through the use of a calendar in a very small way that He knew that my client was in high school. He knew his girlfriend was a high school student. He knew school doesn't get out till 3 p.m., and yet he went to her house to interview her at noon on a school day. A lot of it was just mind-boggling for me as a defense lawyer and I think most of the jurors in terms of the shoddy investigatory work that was conducted in this case. It was also brought out that notwithstanding the claim by the police that they had been working the case for seven and a half months before making the arrest, that there wasn't a single 
notation in the police records of any work, including um, lab work that was done after approximately a three-month period. So they were kind of sitting on their hands on this one um, before making these arrests. That's that's unbelievable, and and yet I've I've seen it. I, I've seen this happen before, and I've had similar cases. I had a a murder case in um, in another city at a big outing. There was a, it was a fundraiser, and so they had a big cookout at a at a a tavern that was outside. The cookout was outside, and there was hundreds, a hundred hundred and fifty witnesses, and they didn't talk to any of them. They just talked to the people who came forward, and. When I spoke to these people, they all told me who did it. They they gave me the whole lay of the land, <laughs> and eventually my clients were there. Was two of them. There was two co-defendants, and they were proven innocent. So I, I totally understand what you're going through and what you did. And people just can't believe that this really happens. And I, I don't know why it does, other than maybe there's there's too much caseload because. Yeah, I'm extremely thankful for for the men in blue, and you know, obviously for our military and and all of our EMS personnel who go above and beyond. But sometimes it makes you wonder why they they cut corners and there's lackadaisical police work in this case that really leads to these situations, and it's unfortunate for the for the family um, and for everybody else. And he, he, your client, was lucky that he had you on his team because you know maybe this this could have had a different. Uh, effect if there there wasn't you know a really strong defense attorney. Do, do, well, it is know, really sad, uh, Jeff. It, it's not. It's sad not only for my client, but it's horrible as well for the victim's family because they don't get justice when the wrong person is arrested and charged with a crime. The victim's family. I mean, not only is it terrible for the person who's arrested and has to sit in jail for years until the trial comes around, as it was the case here, but it was terrible for the victim's family, too, because rarely in my experience will the police go out and arrest the right person when it is brought out through a trial that they got the wrong guy. It's because of a refusal or a... uh, the refusal to admit mistakes sometimes. And that mm-hmm. was what happened in this case. Nobody wanted to own up to the fact that mistakes were made. And uh, yes, it was a very difficult investigation because of the lack of cooperation. But right at the outset, they were giving, given uh, the reasons why this allegedly happened. And there was very little, if any, follow-up on that victim's statement. I would suggest that because that young man who provided that to the police, that information was a victim. He had no motivation to lie. Yep, I, I couldn't agree with you more. This is a, a perfect time. We're going to take a real quick break to um, um, go to a commercial and let our sponsors uh, have a moment, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, 
security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator, featuring stories and articles on current topics and issues written by professional investigators and leading experts in the profession. Real equipment reviews from top surveillance investigators with years of experience. PI Magazine offers investigative tips and practical advice for the newly licensed to the seasoned veteran investigator. Catch up on recommended sources, vendors, and professional services. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Welcome back. And let's pick up right where we left off. So, you were just mentioning how it was, it's so unfortunate for the, the family and for the victim's family and, um, and how the police or, or the, the whole prosecution side, even when they realize there's a mistake, they just kind of keep going. And, John, I always feel like when we go to court in these situations, it's us against them, meaning the defense against the prosecution. And I, I always like to, your case kind of goes around a football game a little bit, but that, that's my analogy is it's not a football game. You know, when, when we're working, um, honestly, and in the best interest of the law, both sides should be working to, together to identify the truth. Instead, it seems like someone is always trying to hide something that can lead to the truth. And again, why is there such an adversarial approach from the prosecution in this case, especially in this case, and you know, you mentioned you mentioned a few things, and can you elaborate a little bit more on that Letterman's jacket? Can you talk about the numbers and the name that's on there, and um, how how that? Yeah, the client had a, a very common last name like Smith or Jones or or the like, and so in his statement videotaped uh, to the police department about two months after the shooting and five and a half months before they came out and arrested him. He had told them that he was number two on the football team. The police uh, did nothing to verify that. That is to say, they discounted what he was telling them, and that was reflected by virtue of the fact that they didn't follow up with any of his alibi witnesses. And moreover, they never went to his school or obtained his school yearbooks to confirm whether he was telling them the truth as to uh, something as small as 
going to school there or being on the football team. And that became very important because at the preliminary hearing, one of the reasons this case went to trial was the lead detective said that um, they had found his letterman jacket in the car, and that conflicted the detective and the other investigators with regards to the credibility of my client because it cast doubt on his story that he was at home that night with his girlfriend as opposed to in the vehicle. Well, if they had done one ounce of checking, something as small as calling the high school and asking to speak with the football coach, they would have learned that there were three people on the team that year who had the same last name as my client, my client being one of the three. And if they were had exercised any astuteness in their own investigation, they would have also seen that the number on the jacket that they had, it did have my client's last name, but below the last name, it had the number five. And you'll remember I told you that my client's number was two and that he had told police that in the videotaped interview. Now that evidence came out at trial. And it came out in a way that was very um, rare. And by that I mean this. The prosecution either knew and introduced it anyway or was never told by the police about this and didn't discover it during their own case preparation. I say that because in their opening statement, the prosecutor mentioned that they would see a high school letterman's jacket that was found in the overturned SUV with my client's name on it, and that indeed was brought out on the direct examination of the police officer by the district attorney and entered into evidence as item number, a piece of evidence number 85 or 86 in the trial. There was no break taken between direct exam by the district attorney and cross-examination by myself, which would have afforded the detective to have learned that it was not my client's coat. And so on cross-examination, when I brought out the fact that he hadn't done any homework by virtue of following up on what my client had told him and checking it out through the alibi witnesses or calling the school or the coach or checking in the yearbook to confirm whether he was telling the truth as to something even so small as the coat and pointing out that he had told him that he was number two during the videotaped interview at EPD or at the police station, then picking up item number 85 and asking him what number is on that and how it is different than what the client had told him, he admitted that he had made a mistake and that they had learned that that wasn't his coat. And so the question I saved for closing, but that really was somewhat unusual is, then why was it introduced in the first place? Why was it introduced if you knew it wasn't his coat in the opening statement and in the direct examination of this witness? And why was it left to me to drag out of him that it was a mistake when this piece of evidence, its admissibility should have been highly scrutinized 
by the prosecution before it was ever mentioned, let alone brought into the case. Right. They could have they could have gone another step further further on top of all that and and checked it for DNA as well, and then matched the DNA from the coat to the DNA of your client, which obviously wouldn't have helped them. But they didn't. Doesn't sound like they they were too aggressive in trying to uh, really identify the owner of that coat. I coach I coach football and I coach middle school and it, it feeds into our high school program and I'm not sure about your about his your client's high school team but most high schools they have a all of their players are online you can normally go online and you have a whole profile of you know what position they play how much they weigh what grade they're in and obviously their their number. So uh, again, I don't know if your school does that or that particular school does, but several in in our in the teams that we play in the high school here, they all do that. So you don't even have to leave your desk is what I'm trying to say. It's that simple. Yeah. Well, another piece of evidence that they introduced, which was somewhat um, shocking to the jurors, I think, was fingerprint evidence. And there were no fingerprints of my client, no hair, no fibers, no uh, DNA, nothing, no blood of his found in this vehicle. So either, um, notwithstanding the fact that none of the occupants could have possibly foreseen that the, the vehicle was going to crash and they were going to be tossed about the inside and have to climb out, either uh, he was very fortunate because he was in there and happened to climb out was, was, was the theory, or he wasn't there. Now, which one seems more plausible, right? But they right. introduced fingerprint evidence through a fingerprint expert, and he testified that there was sets of prints found on the car that couldn't, my client couldn't be ruled out as having put there. And that's a scientific term in the fingerprint business because if, if the fingerprints on any item that is tested, um, if they don't have a sample of who they actually belong to, then everybody in the world can't be ruled out. They could belong to that person. In this case, that was brought out on cross. I said, well, let me ask you something. Couldn't be ruled out, but couldn't be ruled out that they're mine, right? Yeah, couldn't be ruled out that they're somebody else's, right? The only way to rule it out is to get the fingerprints of the people who are suspected of doing this and test them against the fingerprint that was lifted from the vehicle. Yeah. And so when you concluded that he couldn't be ruled out, it's because you didn't have an exemplar to compare it against. Right. At the time that these prints were submitted to us, your client had yet to be arrested, and therefore we didn't have an exemplar. Okay, fine. After he was arrested, he was fingerprinted? Yes. Were they then resubmitted? Uh, did the police resubmit his fingerprints so that you, the fingerprint expert, could reevaluate never well whose job is it to submit this stuff it's the lead detective's job to resubmit it once they obtain the prints they were never obtained and the fingerprint expert testifies i don't go out looking for this information they submit it to me and tell me what they want ask me what you know and i i tell them if it matches or not so they never they never resubmitted the evidence that they claim to have had against my client to rule him out and again, so all that left in the case, all that left was the one uh, singular eyewitness who claimed to have seen him get out of the SUV. 
And he admitted that. You, you know, he admitted we have absolutely no physical or forensic evidence linking your client to the scene now that the jacket has been determined not to be his. All we had was that one single witness who claims that it was him, who claims that she knows it was him because she grew up with him in the neighborhood. And can you elaborate on on that witness? Because she later on recanted, if I'm correct, during the trial, she recanted some of her test, her previous statements. But are, are you able to elaborate ab- about that and also the relationship she was in with one of the other individuals? Yeah, that, that witness was a teenage female and a very interesting witness because after this incident occurred, she... Uh, was interviewed by the police, but it wasn't for several months later. That means she didn't stay at the scene. And what she told the police was that she was sitting in a car uh, just about to leave the party, that her and her friend had gone to get in the car, when all of a sudden they heard gunfire, a lot of gunfire, and it was getting louder and louder and louder as this SUV got closer and closer and closer to the street or the location where their car was parked on the street. And it seemed like bullets were flying everywhere and hitting everything around them. Uh, And then she saw it make the turn, overturn, and she got out of the vehicle and went towards it, seeing, and as she was doing so, she saw three people get out. And she claimed that the first one, she didn't know who it was. The second one was my client, DeMond, and the third one was the SUV owner, Keyshawn, And that's what she told the police. But then, of course, like I said, she didn't remain at the the, the scene to tell them that. She was only uh, compelled to tell them that after they went to her probation officer several months later and at a time that she was reporting in to juvenile probation and questioned her. Uh, Turns out they never asked the probation officer what she was on probation for. She told the police that she knew it was my client because she knew that he was friends with Keyshawn by virtue of the fact that she grew up in the neighborhood that they both grew up in. However, she admitted at the trial that she just assumed that it was my client by virtue of his friendship with Keyshawn from the neighborhood. And that's why she told the police it was him but I also brought out the fact that she hadn't seen my client, Namond for over a year prior to the crash of that SUV that night because she had been in a juvenile detention home. And the police officer, the lead detective, admitted that he didn't know that. He didn't know that until it was brought out at the trial um, that she hadn't seen him or knew anything about where he was living. As a result, she didn't know that my client wasn't living in the old neighborhood. He'd moved in with his girlfriend and had been living there for several months and wasn't hanging out with these, the, the guys that he once hung out with from his past. Moreover, it was brought out that one of the fingerprints that was found on the SUV belonged to not only Taikim, but uh, Jahan, as I mentioned earlier, and he was on sitting there on trial. It came out that... Taikim and Jahan were very close friends and a member of a gang together, and that this witness had sexual relationships, had a sexual relationship going on with Jahan. So 
So my theory was either she's mistaken and being truthful when she gets up here and says she pointed out it was uh, to police it was DeMond Mitchell, but there's no evidence to support that, no physical or forensic evidence whatsoever. In fact, the evidence suggests that it was someone other than him, or she's lying. Because remember, she said the first person out, she didn't know who it was. I would suggest that it was Jahan, because his fingerprints were on there, and she didn't want to identify her boyfriend to the police. The second person out, she identified as my client, but Tykeem's fingerprints were on the SUV. She knew Tykeem had been shot earlier that year uh, by Milano, because on Facebook, shortly after he was shot, we introduced her Facebook uh, message to him saying, get well, Keem. And he looked substantially like my client. I mean, you wouldn't be able to distinguish which one is which unless you knew them personally. So she just put the thumb on my client to keep Jahan, her boyfriend, and Tykeem, his close associate and her friend, out of the ringer. Now, there was no helping Keyshawn. Keyshawn, it was his vehicle. He was injured. His blood was on there. And moreover, outside of the driver's side of the overturned SUV was the registration with his name on it, a revolver, and a name tag like the kind you get if you go to a convention that you peel off and stick on your chest and it said, hello, my name is Keyshawn. Well, some people aren't the brightest, so yeah, he was <laughs> he was definitely gonna get what what he deserved from that. But it sounds like she was obviously covering for her boyfriend. She didn't identify him coming out, and she named somebody else to throw the police off of of her own boyfriend and um, that gang and and that associate that group of people who were all associated together. Yeah, and the police knew nothing about, nor did they investigate her background, which was brought out by me during the course of the cross-examination. The cross-examination, in this case, of the police officer and of that witness was crucial to my client's defense. And um, fortunately, everything that was needed to ensure that justice was done on his behalf um, came out. But not to have looked or even asked her probation officer when they went over there to interview her, why she, why she on paper and where has she been the last year, uh, or to get that information, not to have scoured her Facebook page to see her association with these other people who were, uh, it, it was determined their fingerprints were on the SUV. It was strange, and and then I turned the tables on her and basically accused her of being involved in it because it it seemed highly suspect to me that she was at the party before the bullets were flying. She was safely seated in her car at the time the bullets were flying. She then went back to the party right after, uh, but before police arrived, after the shooting occurred, and um, none of the bullets that were flying struck her vehicle. Not a single bullet of the the bullets that were found in people's houses, in people's cars, the people, none of them struck the vehicle she was safely seated in. And in addition, she said on the witness stand that she didn't know it was Keyshawn's uh, vehicle until he got out. 
which was suspect because why would you get out of your car and run up to the SUV at the risk of unknown assailants climbing out and shooting you if you didn't know who was in there and you didn't know that you were safe with those people? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, everybody else, any other person would be running the opposite way, not 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 to that vehicle. So uh, it sounds like you, there's numerous red flags that are going up with everything that, that she did and said. I, I, I can get where you're coming from. We're going to take a real quick break. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator, featuring stories and articles on current topics and issues written by professional investigators and leading experts in the profession. Real equipment reviews from top surveillance investigators with years of experience. PI Magazine offers investigative tips and practical advice for the newly licensed to the seasoned veteran investigator. Catch up on recommended sources, vendors, and professional services. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Welcome back. John, I'd like to back up to the very beginning when your client first, uh, his mom, wanted to bring him into the police station and and clear the air because there was rumors circulating on social media that he may have been involved. And he voluntarily, on his own accord, went with his mom to the police department, which I think is a very noble and and humbling experience, especially for somebody who who may not have an understanding about the, the judicial system and the criminal justice system, I would think that it would be better. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to insult them in any way, because this is what happens for innocent people. They believe they're doing the right thing and they're trying to clear the air before it gets uglier. But in your opinion, do you think in, in those situations, it's better to have legal counsel um, 
attend with you. So they're, you or, or an attorney is there to uh, represent the individual in those situations? I think it's always beneficial to have a lawyer with you if you're going in, at least under the circumstances we're discussing, where there's the potential for very serious charges to be brought by the police against the citizen. But there's a psychology that goes into uh, the police assessment in these things, and it cuts both ways. When a client or a suspect goes in with a lawyer, I think the psychology of an officer, to some degree, or at least in part, is, well, why would you need a lawyer and have lawyered up if you didn't do anything wrong? On the other hand, um, if the person goes in without a lawyer, there may be a psychology to the police officer of, hey, the guy's entitled to a lawyer. He's voluntarily waiving that right. Could it be that it's true? Could it be that it's because he has nothing to do with it? Does that give him more credibility because he didn't take a lawyer than if he did take a lawyer? Uh, There's a lot of questions that can be asked, and I think that that is dependent upon who the investigating officer is. But my advice to any citizen who is being investigated or is the suspect of a very serious crime is it would be best to have a lawyer with you, notwithstanding any negative inferences that the officer or detective may draw from that. Yeah, I would agree with you. And and I understand there's, there's I think no matter what, the individual was to do, the investigating officer is going to spin it the way they want to spin it, right? You know, if it's, if it's that thorough investigator, and, and I've spoken before about, again, I'm not against police and law enforcement at all, and, and I have many friends that are, and one that recently retired, and I always talk about his ethical standards, and, you know, he dots his I's and crosses his T's and understands that, you know, if somebody and he was a detective with the Pennsylvania State Police and, and knows that if somebody did something wrong, you need to investigate and get them legally, not illegally. Right. You can't take shortcuts. So, you know, people are going to draw their own conclusions regardless. And I think spin it in their own way. It's just better safe than sorry, knowing and that's part of this this podcast and the show and and all the the different tv shows on the id channel and discovery channel is you know these things happen and you see how law enforcement will try to spin it against you regardless so i think having the attorney present is definitely in in the the client's best interest at all times yeah one other question i was talking to my interns I, i have four interns from westchester university and one intern from penn state criminal justice majors. And, you know, so we were reviewing the case and going over this. And one of them brought up this question, which I I thought was an interesting question. Because there was gangs involved in some of the the, the people that you talked about, there was two rival gangs. And did they have any, any, any markings, any tattoos, those guys that you know, that you know of? Um, There were, there were signs and symbols on social media postings uh, as to whether or not Tykeem or Milano, the two who were shooting at each other in this case, or that's my theory of the matter, um, had markings. We'll never know because the 
interview with Milano got shut down real early when he asserted uh, uh, his right to counsel, and he was never arrested or re-questioned. Um, and Taikim was never sought out to be questioned. So whether they had their markings of who they associate with on their bodies, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Fair enough. That's just, you know, for, for all of these very reasons that, that you've brought up, the defense must always conduct its own investigation instead of relying on the investigation conducted by the prosecutorial team. Uh, Again, from what you described, and of course the outcome, you did a great job identifying the facts and writing the wrong at the trial for your client, but that doesn't always happen. And and that's why it's important to do your own investigation. And that's something that, you know, I I may have wanted to do or um, probably didn't, maybe you didn't need to in this case, but just to see when, when the criminal investi- criminal defense investigator goes out trying to re-interview all these people, in a lot of cases you end up getting different things that the investigator is able to uh, acquire because you're not necessarily law enforcement and, you know, somebody, a witness may be more apt to talk to the investigator, um, not being threatened that they're going to be locked up and, you know, probation violation, parole violations, which sound like a lot of these players were involved with um, some of the other witnesses and um, suspects and so forth. But looking at social media, you know, seeing if there was, like you said, the markings on their social media, that they want to, they're proud of it, you know, and if that's just something else that could help defend your client, it's all the better. You're exactly right in terms of how you describe the roles of, of the of the players in the in the system as well as the the, the players who are the witnesses. Um, one thing I, I like to say, however, is that notwithstanding the fact it's an adversarial process, uh, we're all on the side of justice. We all want the right result to happen, and so. What I try to do is bring out the things that the jurors need to know in order to determine whether or not the prosecution's case and the thoroughness or lack thereof of the police investigation can be trusted with any level of credibility. And if it can't, because of the shortcomings, because of the questions that were never looked into or answered, then nobody under our system should spend a day in jail, let alone years in jail. And as you noted at the outset, that happens. Now, our system isn't perfect, and I don't have all the answers, but uh, with the advancements of science, DNA evidence, and so on, we know that happens. Uh, It happens, as you noted, in part because of shoddy investigations and a number of other reasons, but uh, in this case, it happened in part due to shoddy police work and the faultiness, frailness, or uh, outright lies of an eyewitness being either mistaken or lying. Yep. No, abs- absolutely. And that's why it's, it, I, I don't have the answers either, you know, other than I think some departments need to do a better job. You know, there are certain accreditations within the, the law enforcement community and, you know, some departments have that, the Pennsylvania State Police have that. And not to say that, you know, they don't have some, you know, that they don't make wrongful arrest as well. But, 
you know, the more training that they can do and the more certifications as well as um, background checks even on their their recruits. You know, it's just it's a, it's a whole nother world, you know, in this day with technology and social media. And, and there's so much to be identified from social media and the technology and the World Wide Web that I think both sides need to use it to the best of their advantage and try to do a better job. And and also, you know, I, we, we had talked a little bit earlier um, be, before this, this, this call, but there's no when when the police officer makes a mistake or intentionally makes a mistake like that or the prosecutor, very rarely are they held accountable for that. And I think there's some more things that need to be um, looked into in the judicial system where there's some more accountability on the side of the law enforcement and the the prosecution when they're, you know, obviously there's the Brady, the Brady violations and whatnot, but still there's no repercussions for when they're purposely withholding this to them and to their license and to their job and their employment. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Very rarely do you see, uh, a admissions of wrongdoing by the prosecution or B serious consequences for wrongdoings that occur if they're intentional. Now, from time to time, you may see it. Um, that comes to mind that Duke lacrosse uh, prosecution of those students years ago. I can't recall the specifics, but you know, generally speaking, if the defense were to introduce knowingly false or contrived evidence, the remedy is disbarment. Uh, on the other hand, when it's done by the police or the prosecution, the remedy is the defendant gets a new trial. Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting in this case uh, anything beyond what I've stated as far as the facts go. I'm not suggesting that at the time the detective testified at the preliminary hearing, he knowingly uh, testified that it was my client's jacket. He was either mistaken, confused, um, lacking in memory, some something. But, you know, I can be critical of the officer handling almost any of my clients' cases in the courtroom. But I believe that they're trying to do the right thing. I know this detective. I know he was trying to do the right thing. I think in this particular case, he was in over his head. Um, and due to the lack of cooperation combined with the voluminous number of people and evidentiary items that they had seized and interviews that he was trying to put together, there's no way he could retain all of that. And I'm not, again, I'm not being critical of his intellect either. I'm just saying it was a lot of stuff and it took me months to sit down and put it all together and digest it. And I had the luxury of doing that. Whereas a one detective, he's getting new cases every day uh, and he just can't set them aside in a perfect world. He could, but our police uh, by and large, are trying to do the right thing, and and most of the time they're hitting the mark. Well, well said, and much appreciated. Well, 
this hour pretty much flew by. I can't believe it's been an hour already. We only have about a minute, minute and a half left. And I guess um, just real quick, if you can share one, how your client's doing today. And being that this was not a wrongful conviction, it, he was he was found not guilty. But is there anything that could be done civilly to, to compensate your client? And lastly, um, what are the best ways for clients to reach you? Um, the client today is doing very well. Uh, hasn't had any problems in terms of run-ins with the law since this and had none beforehand. So I'm very happy for him. And he's back to work again. Uh, he was working at a home for elderly people in the kitchen, and he's doing that work there now. He has graduated from high school. Um, and as far as reaching me, if anybody would like to um, seek my services or has any legal questions or needs legal help, I'm available at 814-459-8011. That's 814-459-8011. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. And folks, as you heard, Attorney Carlson explained how his client was the victim of a mistaken identification and a shoddy investigation. And the details are shocking, but the outcome is inspiring and really because of some really good uh, attorney work. So if you're in need of an attorney, I would, I would recommend uh, Mr. Carlson. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. As we continue to increase our listener base, we appreciate your positive reviews. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week.